0: Galatians 6 this morning is where I'd invite you to focus your attention. Galatians 6, we're headed into what I thought was going to be the conclusion, and I studied verses 11 through 18 and thought I might even wrap the whole thing up in one sermon today, and then I found myself going back to verses 9 and 10, and so I'm studied ahead, but I couldn't Let verses 9 and 10 go with just a cursory thought last week about it. And it just connected with life enough that I thought I need to share what I think the Lord is impressing on my heart with your hearts. And hopefully we'll find the answer to why the Lord had us go back to verses 9 and 10. Listen to how it all ties together, though, beginning at verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever, so, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Last week, we talked about the theme of what I think this section is speaking to, and that is Paul very dogmatically and with a thunderclap saying God is not mocked. In the end, God will not be mocked. God is a God of holiness and a God of accountability. He brings the exposure to all he has created, all will give an account. Hebrews 4.13 says he is the highest power, and though liberal media or culture or colleges or universities or neighbors or whomever may deny God, The witness of God is on everyone because all are made in his image and they know in their heart of hearts with whom they have to do. And yet they know that and yet they don't know that being darkened in their understanding. They don't realize whom they are messing with, with whom they are enemies of and accountable to Romans 2. They're storing up wrath in their mockery. Ultimately, only Judgment Day will show what God does with those who are flamboyantly rejecting him. Well, to get into this text, verse 6 begins with an admonition to take care of those who... Give the word of God and verse 6 explains this as a form of fellowship of giving and receiving that the treasures that come to you through preaching or teaching or community groups or church should be a reciprocal dynamic where we are giving towards word ministry leaders who are giving the word of God that is a prompt for us to give it's also a prompt for those of you who are teachers who are hiding your teaching gift who are not coming forth yet and saying why can't I start a Sunday school class why can't I lead a community group and whether that is the determined timing for you to do that or not let us determine that together let's figure it out but you need to be teaching it teaching children teaching whomever within the body of Christ. The the Bible does not speak to an individualism in Christian community. There is the temptation to just load your mind with a survivalist mentality where you'll bear your own load in life, but you won't bear the other burdens of the body of Christ, which Paul clearly says we're obligated to do both, teaching the word, supporting the word, Teaching others and supporting others with the burdens that they bear, doing that all together in community, not being consumers, but being body life members with each other. This is how Paul is wrapping up this letter, this epistle, speaking of this kind of investment Verses 7 and 8 begin to build the mindset of sowing and reaping, investing and yielding a harvest. All in the context of God not being mocked. Verse 7, you shouldn't be deceived about this. Not like a wandering planet, that is the Greek word planao, where you're just spinning around in the solar system somewhat aimlessly, ignoring the fact that God is not going to be mocked in the end that we if we sow to the flesh verse 8 we're going to reap corruption we're going to be like fabric that fabric that is pulling apart we're going to be disintegrating now in this life and in the life to come this corruption is an eternal corruption for those who are sowing to the flesh basically showing that they are unbelievers Though believers, at the same, in the same sense, can sow to the flesh and reap and yield corruption in this life. Ultimately, this is a warning against people who are spinning completely out of control, walking away from the faith. Verse 8 ends by saying the one who sows in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And this is, again, speaking of the eternal life that's in the Christian's heart. It's the eternal life of loving God now. It's knowing God personally, intimately, relationally. You walk with Christ now. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you may know me. It's knowing God personally. It's knowing God intimately. And it's the eternal life that goes into eternity. Those who coddle the flesh, those who live for the flesh, those who in the context here are sowing money into the flesh, into the descriptions of the flesh from Ephesians five nineteen through 21, all of the works of the flesh. If you sow into immorality, if you sow into enmity, if you sow into rivalries, if you sow into drunkenness, if you sow into wantonness, if you sow into a lifestyle of being out of control, you're going to reap corruption. A corruption that will ultimately find you out in the end, perhaps as an unbeliever. But contrawise to that, you can sow instead in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, sowing into loving people, sowing into the joy of your life, sowing into a clean conscience. Sowing into a selflessness where you're building each other up and enjoying life together against such things. Look at verse 23 of chapter 5 again. There is no law. There's nothing legal against doing something like that. There's no prohibition to this kind of life. Even in our normal common grace governing system, there's no, there's no anti-this This is the life that we can freely live and that we freely live as Christians. This is the seed sowing that we want to sow into the hearts of our kids. This is the early seed bed that we want invested in the lives of our kids, our grandkids, our spiritual kids, our spiritual grandkids, our spiritual family members. We want to sow seed like this. Don't sow seed this way. That leads to corruption a moral fabric that will break and rip, but instead sow seeds of life into people and watch this kind of harvest. Doing these things is so vitally important. I started a Bible study recently with a couple of my teenagers and I was you know, you, you you do this thing. They're not here this morning, so I can talk about them, I think. But you do this thing where you, you meet and, and you you log time and you sit and go through Bible study. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's boring and it's boring even to me, right? You know, but, you know, sometimes it's lively and sometimes it's interactive and sometimes it's very enjoyable. But I was going to skip a week and suddenly, the, you know, the antenna goes up and it's like, what is going wrong? What's happening? We have to meet. And that's because we, I was surprised by that because it's it's one of those things where we don't realize the power source that we are wielding. We don't realize how powerful the Bible is. The Bible is either what it says it is, which it's the word of life. It's either the sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, it's joint and marrow. It's either able to do that. It's either the power of the living God unto salvation or it's not. It's kind of like, it's exactly like Christ. He's either God or he's crazy, right? Based on what he said of himself, the word is either powerful and sufficient to do the work, or it is not, and it in fact is. So don't underestimate seed sowing and doing this work. Miserable are Christians who are knowingly sowing in the flesh and reaping temporally a life of corruption. Contra to that, happier Christians who are investing in themselves and in others the seeds of eternal life. So that, again, is a recap of where we covered last week in 7 and 8. But look at verse 9. There is a promise that comes with this life of seed sowing, and this promise begins in verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Often promises in scripture, the, a scriptural promise will be kept by God. The blessing of that promise can be broken by the believer. The blessing of that promise can be broken. Yes, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we have that promise. But if we live in a lifestyle of sin, we forfeit the blessing of that promise. We forfeit the joy of that promise. Eternal life is promised to us, but not without accountability. And when I stand before God one day in the judgment seat, I want God to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of my master. The fear of that is that there's going to be accountability for seeds that were half sown or a mission that was half accomplished, a mission that was not Fully fulfilled in terms of what God would have me to do. And that's the accountability of what we're talking about here in verse 9. Not growing weary. Not having your heart shrink to the point of despair where you are sidelined and unable to continue in your mission. There's a threat here to losing a blessing, the blessing of the Christian life. The subject here is moving from the theme of holiness to doing good, doing good to others in the Christian life. And specifically in the context, it's being generous, perhaps even giving, but done in terms of worship and by and for the Holy Spirit. Paul is readily acknowledging something that we all know to be true. Faithful Christian service, or doing good for other people, is exhausting. It's exhausting. As Paul put it, he labored to the point of exhaustion. It's exhausting. Doing good, pouring out, is and will always and forever be tiring work. Tiring work. It's hard work that God gives us to do. And there are temptations when you are fatigued. ...that are enormous. There are discouragements that come... ...that we have to account for. And verse 9 is saying... ...there's a danger in getting so tired... ...and so weary in the work... ...that we just want to give up altogether... ...to throw in the towel... ...and to stop working... ...to stop sowing seed... ...and doing good. Specifically, again, in the farmer analogy... ...there's a delay between sowing seed... ...putting it in the ground... And the time from that point to when we actually see any life at all. And the time gap between sowing and seeing the fruit and the harvest can cause someone to stop the work, to become weary, to quit. And people quit the faith all the time. Unbelievers who think that they are believers will ultimately and utterly quit the faith. They will deny the faith and they will walk away in complete apostasy. And they'll be found out to never having been saved. But there are many people who will verbally quit the faith... ...though that they are actually believers... ...who sit out, who are sidelined, who are just lifeless... ...almost like they're on the outside looking in... ...wondering what is going wrong. Again, the miserable state of the Christian... ...who's sowing his seeds in his flesh or her flesh. The most miserable person of all. And that's what, again... Paul is combating. He calls out the idea of growing weary. Negatively, this could be someone who's lacking devotion, who's being lazy, who says they're going to work, and yet they don't work at all. They are hypocr- They're hypocritical, talking about serving Christ all the time, but they actually don't do anything. There's a weariness, a vicious cycle where people are trying to do the work of Christ in the flesh, or they're talking themselves up, and they try a little bit, and then they quit, and they stop. And then they become exhausted for that. They become exhausted within their own hypocrisy. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. People are hearers and they talk a good game, but they live within their own self-deceptions and wonder what's going wrong. But positively, verse 9 is an encouragement for those who want to live for Christ. Those who are seeking for a rally cry here to say, I want to bear fruit. Let us not grow weary in doing good. I don't want to stop. And there are those of you who are out there, but you too could be tempted as an inexperienced farmer to get discouraged where you're watering, where you're weeding the soil. But the growth is slow, and so you stop watering the soil. You stop weeding the soil. You stop sowing in the soil, and things just lie dormant. Christians easily fail to persevere in the very service and ministry God has given them to sow. What is it, you can ask yourself, what is it that God has given me as a ministry? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And I'm not just talking... Like in terms of programs, this is not some veiled appeal to fill up the slots in vacation Bible school, though that is necessary to do. It's not, but there are ministries in the providence of God that God opens up for us to consider things, people's lives and areas that we need to think about and say, am I still sowing seeds where I began or have I stopped? My lacking follow-through that is stunting the harvest. Well, the only clear answer for discouragement like this and discouragement in doing good is to actually look at what verse 9 says. It says, for in due season, we will reap. Well, When is that? When are we supposed to reap? Are we supposed to reap the fruit of our labor now? Is that what Paul is talking about? I believe that most of what Paul is mentioning here in verse 9 is talking about the future. He's talking about one day when we stand before the Lord. The harvest of God's people who we've sown into their lives, who come into eternity. It's sustaining ministry at this level where you say i'm going to sow seed i'm going to put my head down and work i'm going to live for christ in this life in this temporal world in this time that he's given me and i'm going to leave the results to god and watch him bring a harvest in his time and timing Paul assumes that we need to fight this faintheartedness, the weariness on this level. It's a relentless fight. It's a fight that we have to talk ourselves through. We're tempted to say, you know, I think that uh, this fight and this temptation will just go away, but it never will. It's a mission that. Perhaps suddenly you begin to believe is less important than it really is. It's thinking the mission that you're on will prove to be a failure. There's a lot of temptations that come up in our minds where we say, why am I doing what I'm doing? What am I, what am I investing for at all anyway? What does it matter to reach out like this or that? People in the history of war attempt to escape their military service pretending bad health. And this is cowardly behavior. Pastor Steve Hatter, who gave the announcements earlier, he um, is a veteran and went to a war college and is a history buff. And I don't think he would mind me sharing an anecdote that he shared with me um, a week ago about World War II soldiers who were unwilling to board planes headed to storm the beaches of Normandy. And obviously to board that plane meant that chances were high that it was going to cost you your life. What's interesting about that story is that the people who did not go onto the plane to storm the beach to go to D-Day were psychologically damaged at such a level that it ruined their lives, the rest of their lives, as opposed to those who went, fulfilled their mission, risking their lives, but survived. There's worse things than dying, and that applies to the Christian life. Giving up. Quitting, stopping, ignoring God's call on your life, ignoring your gift, sinning and sowing seeds of the flesh into the field of the flesh of your life instead of denying that, repenting of that, sowing seeds of life and spiritual life into the field of the Holy Spirit that's in your heart, using your gift, demonstrating Christ's power in other people's lives, in your life, and enjoying your life. Strong believers compel themselves to this duty. And even when it's cutting cross grain in this world, you have to be strong in grace to fight the good fight of faith. To not be strong is to be low in grace. And as Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, When you're laxing in Christian service, it's because you cannot get out of a man that which is not in him. There has to be an investment inside for something to come out. For you not to grow weary. For you not to lose heart. For you not to persevere. It's easy to become knocked off course or change course. ...because of divisions or dissensions or cynicisms. There's a deadly disease of the heart in the Christian. And I'm telling you, the longer I'm in the Christian life... ...the more I realize that life is about getting up, waking up... ...preparing your heart, serving and investing... ...going to bed and doing it all over again. Day after day, in work, in service to the lord there are high points in life there are low points in life but basically the normal christian life of wake up invest in your heart invest in others go to bed and do it all over again is the christian life it's the what is it lather rinse repeat you know instructions of the shampoo bottle you just you just keep going in the christian life and Often people miss that and they live for their ship to come in for some better day or they become discontented in their circumstances looking for some kind of quick fix and it leads to being super discouraged. The verse like this, by the way, is not a works-oriented verse. I think sometimes people look at that and say, we're doing good. So suddenly is it this, if I keep going and then I get heaven, is that what this is talking about? And that's not what it's talking about at all. There are passages in scripture that speak of what's called the doctrine of perseverance. And I love the doctrine of perseverance. This is talking about investing and not growing weary, not stopping in the fight, but this is not putting someone's salvation on the line. There are warnings that way. There are people who suddenly denied the faith. There was Hymenaeus and Philetus that talk of uh, their talks spread through the church like gangrene. There was Demas in love with this present world who deserted Paul, has gone to Thessalonica. These are people who are short-circuiting their path. Did they lose their salvation? No, they were people who were hard-hearted like Judas Iscariot, who were tasting of the power of God, who were around the power of God, who thought that they were justified by Christ. They thought that they were in Christ, but they, they would not finish the race. And they showed themselves not to be Christians at all and that is a true doctrine in scripture it's not losing your salvation it's just explaining what went wrong when someone denies the gospel actively or actively willfully is repeatedly in a sin a cycle an unbroken pattern of unrepented hard-hearted sin that is proving a person's heart condition is lost instead of saved Colossians 1.22 talks about being reconciled in the body of Christ, being presented holy and blameless by Christ. But the very next verse, that's Colossians 1.22, 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In one sense, there are passages like Colossians 1.22 about how Christ sees you. He's reconciled you. He's sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He's transformed your life. This is God's perspective. This is God's work. And what he does, he does perfectly. Nothing can change that. From our perspective, though, down here on earth, as we examine our own lives, we have to test ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, are we producing the fruit of the Spirit? Are we continuing in the faith and hope of the true gospel? When people begin to change the gospel or broaden the gospel or augment the gospel or add to the gospel or take away the deity of Christ from the gospel. When people begin to you know, mix pieces and parts of the gospel up, that's when you begin to question, where is that person spiritually at all? Has God, from his perspective, done that saving work at all? From our perspective, we have to examine that. What is my track looking like am I persevering morally spiritually am I persevering in truth doctrinally how the Bible speaks first Timothy 2 15 talks about women being saved through childbearing what in the world does that mean can that mean that the work of childbearing having giving birth saves somebody no not at all that is well you got to hear the end of the verse if they continue in faith and love, and holiness with self-control. The whole point of a person being vindicated as a Christian, or a woman, or a mother in this verse, has everything to do with a woman who's continuing in the faith. She's raising her kids. She's prioritizing that. There are sanctifying elements of that. There are things that God teaches a woman who is given the gift of children um, through that trial, through that joy. and, And that's all part of God's work in a woman's life. But the point of this verse is a woman who is saved is someone who is continuing in the faith no matter what and is living a holy life. These vindicate true faith. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It's not a conditional denial. It's the idea that if you deny Christ... If life gets so hard that you throw your hands up and you go, I don't believe in Christ at all. I'm shutting my heart off to Christ altogether. Then ultimately one day, it means that you were never a Christian in the first place. You're standing before God and God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the warning of 2 Timothy two, twelve. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 is this race of the Christian life. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love this picture of the Christian life. I've never been a marathoner. I've never been a really good runner or anything like that at all. But, but I love the picture spiritually. You're, you're seeing Christ at the finish line and you're saying, I'm committed to Christ no matter what. I'm saved, I know I'm saved, and because I'm saved, I'm going to run the race, and I'm not going to quit no matter what until I go all the way across to the finish line. And you're looking to Jesus, verse 2, The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Whose race is the author of Hebrews talking about now? It's talking about Christ's race. His race all the way up Golgotha. His race with a cross beam attached to his back. His race where he was mocked. His race where he was abused. His, his race where he continued on no matter what. Even towards the anguish of the wrath of God that was put on him. Where he died and was sacrificed for an uncountable amount of hells. Put on him, on the cross. That's the race that he endured from sinners and hostility that was against him. And the writer says, think about that endurance race so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Same word as Galatians 6. He ran the race, so we run our race. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding of blood. Verse 12 Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. If you want to grow straight, it's like a bone that's been broken. If you don't set that bone, it's going to grow back crooked. It's not that, in the analogy, it's not that you're not a Christian anymore. It's just do you want to grow well? Do you want to grow strong? Do you want to be a mature Christian? then endure. Don't quit. Don't become small-souled and stay there. We're all going to undulate in life. We're all going to have peaks and valleys. We're all going to dip at times. You might be sitting there saying, I am so weak right now. You don't even know how weak I am. I understand Christ understands far more, but it's important for you to realize that you don't have to stay there You have to think gospel thoughts. You have to remember Christ endured. You have to remember that you're in a race. You have to remember to, though you are weary now, don't grow weary in well-doing. Keep going. Start moving again. Persevere. A believer is someone who perseveres, puts away sin, kills sin habits, and displays fruit. And an unbeliever is someone who gives up. And utterly gives up. People will build unbelievers up sometimes and give them false assurance. But no matter what profession has been made or what degree to which the profession has been credible to others. Unless God has put life in that person's heart, they're not a Christian. So verse 10 leads us to, or actually verse 9, we're still there, leads us to the second point, which is the harvest the temptation is giving up and growing weary. But verse 9 says in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. If we don't lose heart by doing, by when we're doing good deeds. Spirit-filled Christians desire to do good. Think about that for a second. I just want that to marinate in your minds. Spirit-filled Christians, those who are walking in the Spirit, yielded to the Holy Spirit, want to do good to others. If you don't want to do good for others, there's a good chance that you're not walking in the Holy Spirit right now. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's loving others. It's easy to get discouraged. John Brown, a Scottish preacher from the 1700s, he said Christians frequently act like children in reference to the harvest they would sow and reap in the same day. Let me ask this question What does sowing a good deed look like, according to Paul? What do you see here in the text? What does reaping look like in verse 9? What do you see in the text? Let me give you the answer. He doesn't tell us what the sowing and reaping really looks like. I, he doesn't. He doesn't. And there's a whole lot of Bible that we can bring in to try to inform what doing good works looks like. But just to stay true to the text, he leaves this very, very generic, and I think he does so on purpose, so that the Christian will think about what doing good looks like in their own world, in their own circumstances, on your own turf, with your resources of time or talent or treasure. It's what what has God given you to do? What does that look like for you to serve in this way? And he leaves it generic also in terms of the harvest. What does reaping actually look like? If you'll turn with me over to James 5. James gives a, a very similar word in James 5, verses 7 and 8. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it. Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, how do we get motivated to do good? You have to take your opportunity of what you're called to do right now and harmonize it with what you believe it will be like in the future. Why do you put your head down and work now? Because of the future. Because of the blessing that God will give you then. What is that going to look like? I mean, I don't all the way know. I I know as much as you do. I have the same Bible that you have. I know the promises of being told well done. I know the promises of we're under a no condemnation status. I know the rewards and the scenes and the pictures of receiving the crown of life. I know the idea of going into the effulgent, majestic glorious presence of our savior declaring he's the creator of all things and he's the savior of all nations and i i understand those resplendent incredible ineffable awesome pictures but what will it really be like i don't know all the way right we know by faith but i think that the idea of the christian life is to work really hard by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of Christ, yielded to the Holy Spirit, doing good in this life, going through the highs and lows of life and waiting for, patiently as a farmer, for what that yield will be like in the future. I think that's as far as God and His Word takes us. A lot of times people want some kind of pragmatic result or to be zapped in this life in a way that will make it all worthwhile but really it's being biblically faithful and trusting god faithful within the day and watching him bless our lives with the with the assurance that he's going to give us blessing now and in the future doing good again in the immediate context could be linked back to giving Second Thessalonians 3 to10 through13 is the same concept that Paul is bringing out. He says, "For, "Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies." Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, work a job, put your head down, do it quietly. Some of you are walking in idleness. Some of you are busybodies. Some of you are freeloaders. And so don't enable freeloaders. If you don't work, you should not eat. Don't enable freeloaders. He's forbidding that. But at the same time, he's saying, earn your living and then don't grow weary in doing good. Do good to people. Don't enable the free letter, but do good to people. Help people out. This is Christianity. And there's a reward for it that we do not want short-circuited. What about Paul's life? What was his life like? Did he just, you know, give and it was so good and just enjoyable? Well, Paul's life was filled with frustrations, persecutions that spanned his entire life. And he knew a thing or two about being exhausted. But at the same time, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your your labor." is not in vain. How descriptive is that? What does that mean? What means it's not all going to naught? I mean, as children with parents, a lot of times we're we're told, clean your room, do this, go to school, learn these things, grow. And as a kid, you don't say, I get it. If I learn to do math one day, I'll be able to lead an organization. I got it, right? A lot of kids aren't like that. Some are. Most are not. A lot of times kids don't see the big picture of what's going on. And in the same way as children of God, we don't either. We don't always see how God is using our doing good for others in other people's lives. And yet it will reap in eternity. So many missionaries. I I was reading of some of them. they, They would go to China, right? They would go to India. They would... Africa, these places that were just in the seventeen, eighteen hundreds, they had no gospel, and they were all going from England, right? They were all going from Oxford and the Ivy League schools and launching out, but they were biblical schools then and they became like sending agencies where people would go, like Livingston or William Carey, and they would they would serve and they would give and they would see very minimal results. But they had a a future eschatological vision that kept them going, kept them plotting, and ultimately great harvest came from those things. Second t- Second John one eight, listen to this one. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. It's a surprisingly summarizing verse of all this. Acts twenty twenty four. what did Paul say? He said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He went through a lot. Second Corinthians 4, he was accused of a lot of things. He had a ministry of based on the mercy of God. He said, based on that, I don't lose heart. Verse 8, I was afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It's always knowing something future, knowing that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, knowing that there's an end in sight. It's like you're in a sport, sporting event and you're watching the clock and you can watch the clock wind down. And as you know the quarter is ending, you can continue to push and exert and give effort because you know that you have enough strength till the end. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't quit the game. Don't stop the marathon. You've got enough in the tank because the power of the Holy Spirit is in your life to keep going. Your soul feels small, but don't clock out. Don't stop. Because there is a future reward for those who do not give up. First Thessalonians 2.19, what is our hope, joy, or crown, or boasting before our Lord Jesus? Is it not you? 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So he's talking about a crown. He's talking about a future. It's worthwhile. Sometimes we do see fruit, and sometimes we don't. I like this story. It's the colony of Virginia. Virginia. Um, From the 1700s, there's a conversion story of a man named Luke Short, and he was 103 years old. Sitting under a hedge, he remembered a sermon that had been preached in London when he was there by Puritan John Flavel, 1691. As he recalled the sermon, he asked God right there and right then and there to forgive his sins through Jesus Christ. Luke Short lived three more years, so he was 106 when he died, and the inscription on his tombstone said this, Here lies a babe in Christ, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged to 106. Nearly a century had passed, 85 years had passed since he had heard that sermon that came back to mind. That led him to Christ. That's a large time gap between sowing and reaping, right? I remember a doctor who, he he was a surgeon who worked on one of my twins. It's all a blur, right? Way back when. And uh, when, I think it was Carson, when he was a little boy brand new child, and this doctor had been either recommended to us or we just kind of you know fell into this relationship with him, and he was an on fire Christian. he loved evangelism explosions, so he, even though i 'm a pastor at that time, he has to tell me the full gospel it 's all part of his routine, and he was so brilliant and and was a published you know doctor in his field that he could get away with just witnessing to everybody, so it just didn 't matter, so he was just off the chain he could just do whatever and and I remember hearing his testimony because he was going to tell us his testimony. He said his testimony was him sitting over his mother's grave as an unbeliever his whole life. He said Bill Clinton was in office. Everything was spiraling in the country, and, and he, he was sitting there depressed, and he was standing over his mother's grave. And what came to mind was something I think his mother had told him from Scripture. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Right? Don't underestimate God's word, speaking it to people as a seed that germinates. Even if we never see the conversion, we don't know what God is up to in a life. Well, let's just move into verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, what is opportunity here? Opportunity isn't speaking of the future now. Now Paul is pulling us into the here and now. He's gone to the future when we will reap in verse 9. But so then, because of a reaping that's coming, now we have an opportunity That is this present earthly existence, not occasional opportunities, but the one life that you're given, the unique life that you're given, the limited opportunity you have to serve others. Now that you have that opportunity, let us do good to everyone. The doing good here is a a Greek word for um, energy. The idea of being active, it's effective diligence for the glory of God. Good here has a definite article. It's the good. This is not some kind of just generic do-gooding. This is a specific good that we can do that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit is laying this in our laps to do by God's power. But it's being done in everyday life as the opportunity while life lasts in view of the final judgment. And it's done to two kinds of people. First of all, to everyone. Now, the word opportunity governs the idea of everyone. Otherwise, we would be hopelessly overwhelmed going, if we're supposed to do good to everyone, who do we start with and where do we stop, right? It's doing good to everyone that is in our path. It's governed by the opportunity that is before you in your particular life. Now, the point of this two Two kinds of people, this hierarchy that Paul builds here between everyone and the household of faith at the end of verse 10 is that we share with believers and we share with unbelievers. And a lot of times we're sharing with believers so that those believers will share with more unbelievers. It's all part of reaching the world for Christ. Warren Wiersbe said that we we give to the household of faith and they are the receiver that they might become the transmitter. It's how Christ meant it to be. Our resources are limited. We have to give according to God's providence. And when you give to unbelievers, a lot of times it's doing something, doing good to unbelievers. And you know what that does? 1 Peter 2.15 says it's the will of God that by doing good, you actually put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You're actually shutting the mouths of the critics when you do something for an unbeliever. And watch out, God is going to give you some scenario, right, this week. It's like, oh, man, I'm either going to pass or fail. I'm going to do something for that unbeliever or I'm going to just walk away. If you do something, a lot of times God is working behind the scenes to evangelize or to, to convict or to work in a heart. Even more than a carefully articulated evangelistic argument could ever do. Just doing something. It's a comprehensive, uh, sweeping statement of simplicity that's given to us. Doing good to everyone. Christianity is not about meetings or programs and even, even evangelistic programs. It's doing good to people that are right in front of you. Now, at the same time, there is the supreme love towards the household of faith. And I remember even as elders, they're called to take care of their own families And manage their own household. We manage our immediate family, right? We manage the household that we're given, that we have to supply um, needs for. Otherwise, we're worse than an unbeliever. But we also need to take care of each other in the body of Christ. It's the ultimate consideration that we're one family, one house. Every time somebody is a believer, we're becoming related to each other, it's brothers and sisters. Jesus said, it's the will of God that if anyone does the will of God, they're his brother, sister, or mother. It's relationships that transcend all others. And and this is our priority. We give to each other, but we're giving in light of the mission. Listen to these words as we close. This is from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Spiritual Depression. He said, we need to look ahead to anticipate to look forward to the eternal glories gleaming afar the christian life is a tasting of the first fruits of the great harvest which is to come go on with your task whatever your feelings keep on with your work god will give the increase he will send the rain of the of his gracious mercies as we need it there will be an abundant harvest look forward to it you shall reap.